Feeling tired, anxious, unable to concentrate, or a harder time sleeping? It could be because we are not getting enough of the most important nutrient in our diet. Can you guess it? I'll tell you that and more only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 65, where every week I arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all be a little bit smarter and lead the healthy lives we want to live. How are we all doing this week? All of my projects are fully underway the last couple of weeks. I'm continuing to study the differences between the male and female brain, how anxiety and alcohol dependence are linked. I study nicotine addiction and how nicotine impacts our brain health and overall health. I also study sugar addiction and how we can become addicted to sugar and how sugar impacts our brain. I hope one day soon to be able to publish these studies so that I can share my very cool findings with all of you. So let's jump into this week's episode. For episode 65, I'm continuing in line with some topics that might be relevant to us now that it is summer in many parts of the world. So I'm going to be talking all about hydration. For example, what are some signs of mild dehydration? How does dehydration impact our brain? How much water do we really need to drink? If we consume caffeine or alcohol, do we need to drink much more water? And far more. So as we always do, let's start off with some core takeaways. Mild dehydration is a lot more common than we think. Up to 71% of people in certain countries have been found to have at least mild dehydration. So what are the effects of mild dehydration? Well, this can lead to us feeling very tired or fatigued, not being able to concentrate, having reduced memory, a reduced ability to think, having anxiety, or even headaches. But here's the thing that I think a lot of us did not know. If we are mildly dehydrated often or long-term, some scientists report that this may put us at a higher risk for depression, generalized anxiety, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, or even kidney disease. That's surprising, isn't it? I'll get into the reasons why this may be the case in this episode. So if I'm saying that we need to make sure we are hydrated, how much water do we actually need every day? Is it eight cups of water a day like we usually hear? Nope, it's actually more than that. Our water requirements are dependent on many, many factors, but for the average adult, it is said that we need between 2.7 to 3.7 liters of total water per day. Because we get some water from food, it is said that we need to drink about 9 to 12 cups of water a day for the average person. We need to drink more water, especially if we consume caffeine and alcohol, if we are following fasting, time-restricted eating, or a ketogenic diet. 
we live in a hotter climate, do strenuous exercise, sweat a lot, or have a lot of muscle. However, if we have kidney failure or any other condition that requires us to limit our water intake, this is important to keep in mind as well. Always speak to your physician or dietitian. Now, let's get into those details. Let's start off by briefly talking about what water does for our body, because if we can understand the important role and function water has in our body, then we can better understand how dehydration will impact us and the potential signs and symptoms of dehydration. My goal is to always give us a better understanding, because with understanding, there's more power in that than just memorizing facts. So I'm going to get some of this information from a review that was written in 2010 in the European Journal of Clinical Nutrition. The first important role of water is that it is a building material, as water is present in each cell of our body. So because of this, water requirements increase as a child grows older, as they generate more and more cells. Second, water is necessary for our metabolism and for so many reactions to occur in our body. For example, for the proteins, carbohydrates, and fats to be broken down in our body, water is required. For medications to be metabolized and removed from our body, water is required. Third, water is a carrier. Think of it like a river flowing through our body. On that river, we're able to transport all the supplies or nutrients to the cells. The same time, that river is able to remove the waste from the cells and eliminate it from the body. So that's one important thing. Water is a carrier for nutrient delivery and for waste removal. Water also maintains our blood volume. And we need proper blood volume and blood circulation to provide nutrients to our organs like our brain, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, etc. So if we are severely dehydrated, this will certainly impact our vital organs and the ability to carry nutrients and waste to and from. Fourth, water is very important in regulating our body's temperature. Water can hold onto a lot of heat. It is a great heat reservoir. So when we sweat, that is one way of our body getting rid of heat. Lastly, water plays an important function as a lubricant, for example, for our joints and tissues like our eyes. Water can also act as a shock absorber from impact. For example, our brain is protected with cerebral spinal fluid, which consists mostly of water. So there you go. Those are the main functions of water. So as you can imagine, if we are not getting enough water regularly, It could impact the health of all of our cells, the ability of our organs to get nutrients and the ability to remove waste from our body. It could also hinder our ability to regulate our temperature, our metabolism, our joint health, our brain health, etc. Essentially, it impacts a lot of things, and that's why I say that water is the most important nutrient in our diet. So how does our body know when we need more water? Well, dehydration by definition means below normal levels of water and or electrolytes in our body. So the fluid in our body could become too concentrated, like if there's too much salt or sugar that is present in the blood or extracellular fluid. If that happens, then the first response is by a particular type of receptor in the hypothalamus of our brain called osmoreceptors. Activation of these osmoreceptors can cause the release of vasopressin, Vasopressin is also called the antidiuretic hormone, but I will refer to it as vasopressin in this episode. Vasopressin is released by the pituitary gland, and it has several actions in our body. For me to explain it, I'd like to use this analogy. 
that if we can imagine the hypothalamus of our brain as the dispatcher. And vasopressin is like the city plumber. The city plumber has to travel around the city in order to balance things, to get the water flowing through the pipes again. The city plumber is turning on the pipes or opening up the pipes to bring in more water and is also at the same time rerouting those pipes to bring the water back to the city. Vasopressin is like that city plumber. It does the same thing to correct our dehydration. Vasopressin, like the city plumber, tries to increase the water in our body by making us feel thirsty to entice us to drink water. But vasopressin also causes our kidneys to reabsorb water. This is why when we are dehydrated, our urine volume becomes less because the kidneys are taking back the water. Unfortunately, in elderly individuals, they are more at risk for dehydration because this response to dehydration is reduced. Their city plumber, so to speak, does not work so well. So the elderly don't feel as thirsty or as strongly have that thirst response as younger individuals. In addition, the elderly, their kidneys are less able to reabsorb water. The elderly are also more at risk for dehydration because they may forget to or are less able to drink water consistently, as well they may experience increased water loss through their skin because their skin barrier may become thinner with age. So hydration in the elderly for many, many reasons is very important to keep top of mind. Now chances are most of us are not going to experience severe dehydration frequently. Severe dehydration is more likely to occur if someone is ill with vomiting and diarrhea. If someone drank a lot of alcohol on a hot day and did not drink any water, for example. But day to day, I think it is very likely that most of us are living with mild dehydration. We may not realize this, and we may not realize how it can impact our health. For example, in the United States, 40% of people tend to not meet the minimum water intake requirement. In Great Britain, their hydration was actually better. 19 to 24 percent of people did not meet the minimum water requirement. In Spain, it seemed to be one of the worst countries. Up to 71 percent of people did not meet the minimum requirement for water intake. So it is very likely that many of us listening to this episode right now are not getting enough water every day. Water is the most important nutrient we need to consume daily. Water, I will say, is more important than protein, fats, carbohydrates, vitamins, and minerals. And I don't think enough attention is paid to water and just how important it is for our health. So how can mild dehydration impact our health and well-being then? Well, several clinical trials were conducted where healthy individuals restricted their water intake, and they had different assessments of their mental performance and health. In people with mild dehydration, these were the symptoms the scientists noted. They had reduced ability to concentrate and an inability to feel alert. They felt more tired and fatigued. They were more frequently to have a headache. They had reduced cognitive function, meaning a reduced ability to think, memorize, or make decisions. They had decreased measures of strength and felt more weak. They also tended to feel more anxious or stressed. Being dehydrated by even 2% tends to impair performance in tasks that require attention, psychomotor, and immediate memory skills. For example, Edmonds in 2009 reported that children who had access to water throughout the day reported feeling less thirsty and performed 10-33% to better on different visual and attention tasks versus children with no additional access to water. So hydration is very important 
for our mental abilities. Now, these are some of the short-term effects of mild dehydration, but what about the long-term effects of low water intake? It is said that if our total water intake from food and water is less than 1.8 liters a day, it is thought that we could be at risk for metabolic disturbances and therefore increased risk of chronic disease. But how is that possible? I think it comes down to vasopressin, or the analogy of that city plumber. The city plumber has an important job to do, but it should really only be there in certain scenarios, sometimes. But if that city plumber hangs around too long or all the time, could disrupt the flow of the city. So too, vasopressin, if it hangs around too long, could disrupt our health. Milander wrote a great review in 2016 about vasopressin and the effect it can have on our health long term. So remember, vasopressin is released when we are dehydrated. Several observational studies have shown that people who have high vasopressin levels in their blood long term seem to be at a higher risk for anxiety, depression, diabetes, heart disease, and early death. But how is that possible? Is it just a correlation, or does vasopressin actually cause these negative effects on our health? Well, it appears that vasopressin has other effects on the brain and body, that it does not just regulate hydration status. So it turns out our city plumber just isn't a plumber, but they also have a bad side. Perhaps that city plumber also happens to be a criminal. I say this because vasopressin might cause some negative consequences to our health. For example, vasopressin can stimulate the production of adrenocorticotrophic hormone, which results in the release of cortisol. Probably many of you have heard of cortisol. Cortisol has been in the scientific literature a lot in regard to it having a negative effect and a long-term stress response in our body. Cortisol is considered a stress hormone that manages that fight-or-flight response. Now, that's an important response when we need it. But if that stressful fight-or-flight response is active all the time in our body, that is when we can have negative consequences. And this is thought to be a result of high vasopressin from being dehydrated. For example, cortisol can cause an increase in our blood sugar levels so that we have energy for that fight-or-flight response. But if our cortisol remains elevated long-term, if that stress response remains, then it could contribute to diabetes, improper sleep, feelings of anxiety, weight gain, and headaches, for example. Chronic dehydration could also present as a mild version of Cushing syndrome, which has a lot of those same symptoms. Now, in animal studies, we're able to look at the direct effects of dehydration or high vasopressin levels. And for example, in rats, they've shown that high vasopressin can reduce glucose tolerance, meaning the rats were dehydrated, they were at a higher risk for developing diabetes. But if the rats drank adequate water, their vasopressin levels normalized and their glucose tolerance also normalized. In the Annals of Nutrition and Metabolism in 2015, the scientists reported that proper hydration status may actually be able to reduce the risk for developing chronic kidney disease. The reason being is vasopressin, which is elevated when we are dehydrated, could have a negative effect on kidney health. Vasopressin may also elevate uric acid levels in the body, which may damage the kidneys. So if we are feeling tired, unable to sleep, feeling anxious, it would be wise for us to check in with how many cups of water we actually drink every day and consider that perhaps we're mildly dehydrated. This could be having an impact on our cognitive functioning, 
as well as our long-term health. Now, there are two types of dehydration that are important to keep in mind. The first, which tends to be the more common, is namely just water loss dehydration. And this can occur, for example, from eating too much salt or too much sugar. There's another type of dehydration, which is water loss, but that is also combined with salt and electrolyte loss. And that can happen with being sick, with strenuous exercise or a lot of sweating, fasting, or following a ketogenic diet long term. So how do we typically become dehydrated? There are many ways. The most common reason is that we simply do not take in enough water. We could be sweating because it's hot, we're exercising, we were sick with vomiting or diarrhea. We consume diuretics like caffeine or alcohol that increase water loss. But we also may not realize it, but we can also become dehydrated if we eat large amounts of salt, sugar, carbohydrates, and protein. All these things can lead us to being dehydrated. The reason why is because eating salt, sugar, protein, and carbs could lead to an increase in the osmolality of our blood, which by definition is dehydration. So here's an analogy to understand this. Imagine that we are in our kitchen and we're about to bake something, and we have a cup of water in front of us. Let's say that we add a cup of sugar to that water, and we start mixing it with a spoon. What is going to happen to that water? Well, it'll become a bit cloudy. That water may also become a little bit thicker and not as easy to mix around compared to just plain water, right? Well, this can be a comparison made to our blood. When we eat a lot of sugar or salt or carbohydrates, that sugar and salt is going to enter into our blood. And that has the potential to increase the osmolality of our blood. And as a result, that could make the blood harder to move around in our body, harder for our heart to pump it. That is why our body has that response of reabsorbing more water from our urine or making us more thirsty, enticing us to drink more water. Because we want to add more water to our blood to reduce that viscosity so that the blood can move around more easily in our body. So imagine in that cup of water where you have the sugar, if you add more water to it, that water is likely to get more clear and more easy to, to stir around again. That's why we get thirsty when we eat a lot of sugar or salt. So when we eat a lot of sugar and salt, we need to make sure to drink a lot of water with it as well, because it's also going to give our body a better chance at removing the salt and sugar, and it's also going to be able to reduce that vasopressin response to help us get more rid of more water as well. So now that I've talked about the importance of hydration, how can we tell if we are dehydrated? Well, the best way, the most specific way, is through a blood test to measure the osmolality of our blood. But obviously this is not possible for us to test daily for ourselves. So are there any other easy ways to tell if we are dehydrated? But Hooper conducted a Cochrane review in 2015, which is a very high-quality review, to determine which assessments of dehydration were the most accurate. In this study, that skin-turger test of pinching the skin or the dryness of the mouth did not seem to correlate very well to blood osmolality or hydration status. Interestingly, the two questions that correlated the best to indicate hydration status were number one, if people felt fatigued, they were very likely to be dehydrated. And number two, if people reported that they did not drink water in between meals, they were also very likely to be dehydrated. So those two questions, if we say that we feel very fatigued or if we missed drinking water in between meals, it's very likely that we have some level of dehydration. Also, individuals tend to look at the color of their urine as an assessment of dehydration. 
And it could be an accurate assessment, but I still think those other two questions, if we're fatigued or if we skip drinking water, are more accurate. The reason why I say that is because mentees in 2006 had actually assessed this and compared the color of the urine versus the osmolality of the blood, or in other words, the hydration status of the people. And it did not always correlate. And for example, it could be because of reasons of, back in the mini vitamin episode series where I covered riboflavin, I said that riboflavin, this B vitamin, can actually make our urine brightly fluorescent yellow. The reason being is riboflavin is naturally brightly fluorescent yellow. When we take a supplement or consume a lot of riboflavin, the excess that is not absorbed by our tissues will be removed from our blood circulation and excreted into our urine, and that can cause our urine to be brightly fluorescent yellow. And in that scenario, it would mask our ability to determine hydration status based on the color of our urine. So that is why those two questions of are we fatigued and did we skip drinking water in between meals seem to be the best indications of hydration status. So how do we get water in order to maintain our hydration status? Well, it can be from three sources, the water we drink, the water we eat, and the water that we actually produce in our bodies. The water we drink can come from all sorts of beverages that contain water. The water we eat can also come from all sorts of foods with fruits and vegetables contributing the most. The water we produce in our body actually results from the oxidation of nutrients in our body. Our greatest contribution of hydration does in fact come from beverages. We can lose water through multitude of ways. The most common is through our urine. But interestingly, the second most common route of water loss is through our skin. And the next would be through our breathing and then through our feces. So how much water do we actually need? This depends on many things. If we eat quite a bit of sodium, salt, sugar, carbohydrates, these all add to the osmolality of our blood and the need to increase our water intake. If we are sweating from exercising or live in a hot climate, how muscular we are because our muscle holds on to water, how large we are because the bigger the person, the more water is required. If we have kidney insufficiency or kidney failure, we may need to reduce or limit our water intake. But in general, as an average healthy person, it is recommended by the Food and Nutrition Board that adult women drink 2.2 liters of water a day and male adults drink 3 liters of water a day. So that is about 9 cups of water for women and 12 cups of water for men. So that is more than the usual 8 cups of water recommended that we hear. Now, I do have to ramble on about one thing I don't like, and that is how nutrition boards make recommendations based on being female or male. And they make these recommendations based on gender or sex because they are assuming that men are bigger and with more muscle than women. But we all know that assumption is not fair. So I'm going to change their recommendation and say if you are a muscular person taller than, let's say, 5'7", then aim to try and get 12 cups of water a day minimum. If you are a smaller person, shorter than 5'7", and not very muscular, then perhaps you can go with 9 cups of water a day minimum. This recommendation is made keeping in mind that we are very likely to get additional water from food as well. Our total water recommendation from food and water is 2.7 to 3.7 liters per day. But as I said, if you exercise a lot, sweat, live in a hot climate, you will likely need more. It's important that we listen to our body, and when we feel thirsty, that is our brain, our vasopressin, that city plumber telling us that we need to bring in more water. 
And the reality is that many of us do not listen to our thirst signal because 19 to 71% of us, depending on the country we live in, get below that minimum water intake requirement. I also want to point out in the context of recent diets and ways of eating, the importance of hydration status. For example, in regard to eating a ketogenic diet or doing intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating, we may be more likely to experience dehydration for a couple of reasons. Number one, because in general, this way of eating, we are taking in less sodium and sugar, particularly in a particular time frame as we are with fasting. And number two, because with these ways of eating, we are using up our muscle glycogen for energy. And muscle glycogen is bound to a lot of water. So when we burn that up for energy, we lose a lot of water. This is why a lot of water weight is lost when we fast or eat ketogenic. So it is very important to keep in mind to drink water frequently when we are following these ways of eating. If we are fasting for a long period of time, let's say longer than 36 hours, or if we are following a ketogenic diet long term, let's say longer than 7 days, then it is suggested that we need to keep in mind that we may need to add some sodium chloride or potassium citrate. Glucose as well is typically recommended for dehydration, but if we are fasting or eating ketogenic, I understand that adding glucose or sugar is not possible. So for example, one way of making sure we get enough potassium citrate and sodium chloride is to eat a lot of fresh greens rich in potassium and add a little bit of salt to, to the food. Tomato paste is also pretty high in potassium, so we can try adding a tomato paste to some of the dishes as well. In terms of ready-made electrolyte drinks, Pedialyte and Rehydrolyte are approved by the Institute of Medicine to treat dehydration, but these do contain sugar as well, so that's something to keep in mind. So again, if you're eating ketogenic or fasting, please keep in mind your hydration status, as it is even more important when eating this way. Now, if we consume caffeine or alcohol, this also has the potential to influence our hydration status. Now, whether or not caffeine is a diuretic, meaning if it increases water loss, is still a bit controversial. Some studies show it is a diuretic, some studies show it's not. But many scientists would agree that one milligram of caffeine could cause, on average, 1.17 milliliters of water loss. So what does that mean? Well, if we drink one cup of coffee which gives about 200 milligrams of caffeine, it could cause 234 milliliters of water loss. Alcohol, however, is more clearly seen as a diuretic. For example, one gram of alcohol can cause 10 milliliters of water loss. So we can say that for every can of standard beer that's 5% alcohol, for every small glass of wine, or for two ounces of 30% hard alcohol, that we lose about 140 milliliters of water. Yes, the volume of water in the beer or wine can count towards hydration, but typically we need more water than what is present in our alcoholic beverage. So simply drinking some water or mixing hard alcohol with a lot of water could be a great way to maintain our hydration status. Something that I haven't mentioned yet is in women that have not gone through menopause, their menstrual cycle can greatly impact water retention. Often women will experience more bloating and water retention in the premenstrual phase of the cycle. The reason being is progesterone is highest during the premenstrual phase, and progesterone gets converted into aldosterone. Aldosterone in particular causes our kidneys to reabsorb salt and water, and this can potentially lead to bloating, 
a higher blood volume, water retention, and even higher blood pressure during this time. That is why one common medication to treat high blood pressure is a diuretic, because it'll reduce the water retention, reduce the blood volume, and reduce the workload on the heart, aka blood pressure. However, many doctors are speculating that intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, or eating ketogenic may also be an effective way to reduce excess water retention and therefore may improve blood pressure as well. So if you're wondering why you feel like you're retaining more water at a certain time of your cycle, it is likely because of that hormone aldosterone. So how can we combat that? The best way is to cut down on salty and sugary foods and drinks at this time and to increase our water intake. I know it sounds kind of like an anomaly that we drink more water to get rid of excess water. But the thing is, when we drink water, we prevent that brain signal that tells our body to hold on to water. It reduces that job of the city plumber. It reduces the vasopressin level, so to speak. So simply put, lots of salt and sugar are bad, and drinking lots of water typically is good in normal, healthy adults. So what is the best way to hydrate ourselves? Well, that depends. If we're talking just like on a regular everyday activity and we're trying to stay hydrated, then simply drinking plain filtered water is great. If you want to take it further, perhaps adding sources of potassium citrate in particular may be helpful for hydration because very often many of us are low on potassium. And we need to keep in balance potassium with sodium. A lot of times we take in too much sodium and not enough potassium. So we could try adding cucumber slices, orange, lemon, or grapefruit slices to our water, which could add a source of potassium and could aid in hydration. It would also make the water taste better, which could also help motivate people to drink more water. In a clinical trial in 2012, the ability for different drinks to hydrate young healthy men after 60 minutes of intense exercise was compared. The scientists tested regular bottled water, pure coconut water, coconut water from concentrate, and a sports drink. It turns out that all of the drinks hydrated the men equally. So plain old water is just as good for hydration. In 2015, in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the following drinks were not better or worse for hydration versus regular water. Cola, diet cola, hot tea, iced tea, orange juice, sparkling carbonated water, or a sports drink. They were not different from the hydration response of just drinking water alone. But if we are talking about in the scenario of more serious dehydration and electrolyte deficiency, like after being sick or after fasting for several days, then some electrolytes may be superior in the water to just water alone. So for example, including some sodium chloride, potassium citrate, and glucose to the water. This can be done by adding some cucumbers and orange slices to water and a small dash of salt or drinking Pedialyte, which is a well-balanced hydration solution that is approved by the Institute of Medicine. Interestingly, I noted that Gatorade is on the not-approved list to treat severe dehydration by the Institute of Medicine, but Pedialyte was approved. So I know when I say, okay, minimum of 9 to 12 cups of drinking water every day, that a lot of people say that this is pretty hard for them to drink that much water every day. My one suggestion from personal experience is the more water that I drink, the more my body responded to the thirst signal. So in order to promote water drinking, we can do a few things. 
we can try making the water more flavorful by adding something like cucumber slices. Carrying water with us everywhere and making it more accessible, because studies show that if water is just more accessible, we're just more likely to drink more water. I like to carry around a glass bottle of water. That's just my preference because I feel like that's better for the health and environment. Eventually, we will just get used to drinking more water frequently. We can try to make it a habit by combining drinking water with other habitual things in our daily routine. So for example, when we wake up in the morning after brushing our teeth or as we get ready for work or school, we can add on the habit of drinking a few cups of water during our morning routine. Every time we eat, we can make sure that we drink a couple cups of water. Or for our, during our nighttime routine before we go to bed, we can also make sure that we drink a couple cups of water. That's just one way to try and make hydration status a priority in our lives and to make drinking water more of a habit. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army. As adults, we want to consume at least 2.7 to 3.7 liters of water every day. We can get this from food and water. The general recommendation is 9 to 12 cups of drinking water for the average person, which I know is a lot more than the 8 cups of water that we typically hear. And if we are exercising, sweating, or sick, we will likely need to drink even more water above that. It's important that we listen to our body. Feeling thirsty, tired, having a reduced attention span, feeling anxious, not sleeping well, and not drinking water in between meals are all potential signs that we are very likely dehydrated. If we drink coffee or alcohol, we need to make even more of an effort to drink more water to compensate for the potential diuretic effect. When we are retaining more water, feeling bloated, we can reduce water retention by cutting down on sugar, salt, and drinking even more water. I know it seems like an, ano an anomaly that we need to drink more water to get rid of water in our body, but drinking more water tells our brain to stop retaining water, as drinking water reduces that response in our brain and reduces the release of vasopressin. Remember that analogy I gave that vasopressin is like the city plumber? We need that city plumber. They have an important job, but we don't want them to stick around all the time because they also have a bad side to them. Vasopressin too has a bad side to it. If it is chronically elevated, it could lead to higher cortisol levels, higher uric acid levels, and seems to be associated with feelings of anxiety, risk for diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and kidney disease for many reasons. Lastly, if we are fasting or eating a ketogenic diet long term, we may lose a lot of water. And in order to maintain our energy levels, our focus, our attention, and our strength, we may need to increase our electrolyte and water intake. So we could try to increase our sodium chloride and potassium citrate intake as well. So let's try our best to get those 9 to 12 cups of water every day. After all, water is the most important nutrient, and we need to keep that top of mind. Water is so important for not only our short-term health, but it also appears to be so important for our long-term health as well. Next week is July 4th weekend, so I will be taking a break next weekend from the podcast, but I will still be posting on social media some tidbits of information, so make sure to follow me on social media if you don't already. I hope you all have a wonderful, happy, and healthy two weeks, and I look forward to meeting you all back here on Sunday, July 12th. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. 
Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Thank you.